Hi everybody and welcome again to Nerd of the Third Power, your one-stop shop for all things nerdy and awesome. And welcome to our headline show for April 29th. We're gonna, this is the show where we go ahead and talk at length about things in our industries that we didn't really get to talk about over the course of the, of the regular show. So with that, we're going to jump right into the news. So take it away, guys. So I'm going to get the start this week. Now, I don't have a lot of comic book headlines. I'm sort of taking this opportunity to speak my mind and heart a little bit. Uh, everyone knows on the show, and hopefully the fans, if they don't know, I've been a big pro wrestling fan for about my entire life, for as long as I can possibly remember. Last week, uh, we lost a great athlete and a great entertainer in China. Uh, she was found dead in her uh, room by her managers. Um, we're still not sure what has caused the death. Um, I will tell you, it was probably nothing good. It probably was not a natural death. Unfortunately, the last several years have been quite hard on her. Uh, she was blacklisted by the WWE, especially Triple H and Stephanie McMahon, and almost her legacy of what she did was removed. So to hear the death of her is tragic. Um, it was a you know a piece of childhood I used to watch, you know, the Attitude Era, uh, when I was watching it for a long period of time, to disappear like that is is heartbreaking. She did a lot, like, let's, let's be honest here, she was a pioneer of women's wrestling, absolutely a pioneer of women's wrestling. Uh, she broke down doors, glass ceilings, every cliche you can think about. When she first started, she just came in under the Degeneration X stable, and she was sort of the quiet antagonist or protagonist, depending on uh, the time of day. Uh, she wouldn't say anything. She wouldn't. She would just you know help in matches, and that was about it. Uh, later on, uh, she started talking and started being really entertaining and actually getting involved in matches more and more and more. It's sort of amazing, like that. And let, let's just think about some of the things she did as a wrestler. Um, like, she was the one of the first, I think, women wrestlers. Uh, yeah, she was the first women wrestler to be in the Royal Rumble. ever The first ever to compete. Um, and we never even thought about things like that. Uh, she tagged several times, mixed tag matches and everything like that. Um, and it, it's sort of like this... this funny thing. Uh, she started wrestling for a while, and then she became uh, the first woman to qualify for the King of the Ring tournament. Now, the King of the Ring tournament being a tournament of wrestlers, and the King of the Ring being a sort of pseudo-title. There's, But there have been several like really good uh, wrestlers that came out of it. Stone Cold Steve Austin, Bret Hart, uh, Owen Hart, all these other guys. Like, that's uh, that's insane. Like, she's competing on the same level that men are competing at. And that's amazing. Uh, she also tried to go for the number one contendership of the WWF Championship, but didn't get through it. But then became uh, the first ever, and only to my knowledge since then, Intercontinental Champion by defeating Jeff Jarrett. Like, the Intercontinental title has always been a men's title. But here we have uh, this woman just taking it and sweeping it and, and taking it up. You know, that is a huge huge deal uh, she unfortunately lost it uh, a little bit later on to Chris Jericho but you just can't you can't take away from that she started and they started really taking notice actually a lot of the things that 
she was doing the WWE was starting to take real notice with. They started to bring in other women and started to uh, start a women's division. And this is when, um, for the most part, a lot of things that they were doing for the women was just considered to be you know ugly when you look back onto it. They weren't doing a lot. They were doing a lot of strippings and things like that. But with her wrestling, it started to get a notice. Other wrestlers started to... Uh, started to work as well. You, they brought in Ivory, you know, Trish Stratus, uh, all these other great women wrestlers started to bringing them on, and they started to work them out. It was her? It was her first, you know, pioneering that we had our first real women's division in the WWE uh, at the time, WWF, that lasted for a great while before being ruined by the diva division coming in um and unfortunately that took over for a while and then they're trying to change that back again but it was china all on china's shoulders that they were able to even move forward with this and it was accepted we accepted china as a superstar we didn't think anything of that she was the women's division for a long period of time uh, she teamed up with a great angle of Eddie Guerrero uh, that's still thought about today. A lot of people remember how, at first, that seemed awkward, but then it just showed off both his charismatic skills and her charismatic skills. Um, afterwards, unfortunately, this is when things uh, got really bad. Um, she, she left the company, but one of those things not really left the company kind of things. Uh, she's, they said it was left under personal reasons, but uh, it found out that it was just, it was Stephanie McMahon, Triple H black, uh, blackballing her from, from the company. And that's nuts. And, and that's not how you want to leave such a legacy like that. Uh, she did wrestle a bit in New Japan. So let's think about this. She, I, I believe she actually even main evented the Tokyo Dome. Like, I think the first woman to main event the Tokyo Dome uh, for New Japan ever. Again, just just amazing. Um, she did have a career in uh, pornography after the WWE. And tell you what, though, I'm, I'm... She won awards for it. And she was happy with it. There's nothing more I can say about that. Uh, she tried to go a little bit in the TV and movies. Unfortunately, uh, that did not work. But, you know, things like that. I'm sad that she is gone. I'm absolutely devastated that she she's dead. And I'm... I'm sad she's never going to see the legacy that's not going to be presented before her. Um, it's always tragic when we only recognize an artist for their great contributions after they're gone. We honestly should have, WWE probably should have added her to the Hall of Fame sooner. Um, I'm, I'm glad that they're probably going to now and we are going to let them sort of see and talk about what she has done for women in wrestling. Uh, not just in WWE. I mean, women in wrestling, period. From the independents all the way up to the major promotions. Um, you're, you're, you're not going to find another China. That's, 
that is saying a lot. She's going to be missed. And I hope um, her family and everything like that get a little bit of solace that she was loved from not only from them, but from wrestling fans themselves. So, before everything goes to me blubbering away, I'm going to turn things over to the cat. Cat's going to give you some bit of anime news. Um, I thank everyone for listening to this portion of the show. So we get some news out of the way, some cool things that you guys are looking forward to. Um, so yeah, I hope you guys enjoy this, and I'll be back later. Why, thank you. Katakawa has been making news on our shores. They've entered into a joint venture with New York-based publisher Hatchet Book Group. Hatchet's imprint, Yen Press, will split off and be co-owned by both companies, with Katakawa having a 51% stake. The venture will launch next month as Yen Press LLC. So, what does that mean? Well, Yen Press is currently the second largest publisher of manga and light novels in North America. This alliance should allow them to seamlessly acquire the rights for Katakawa's titles and maybe potentially cut down on the amount of time it takes for the titles to come over here. They've emphasized their interest in further establishing light novels as a new content genre with Hatchet's current model and new Kawakata leadership. More light novels is good. Katakawa also announced a partnership with Crunchyroll.com, granting them exclusive worldwide digital distribution rights outside of Asia, at least for the next year anyway. In exchange, Crunchyroll will co-finance Katakawa's future titles, and they will collaborate on marketing in North America. Now, this isn't like Katakawa buying half of Yen Press. This collaboration feels like a test run. They partner together for a year, see how it goes, and if it's successful, then maybe they can explore more options. Like with Yen Press, exclusive access to Katakawa's titles should streamline the licensing and release processes. Fingers crossed. Moving on, it's been announced in Nakayoshi Magazine that the new Cardcaptor Sakura project that was announced a while back, which was confirmed to be a manga a few weeks ago, is officially set after the events of Cardcaptor Sakura, the original manga. It's set during Sakura's first year of junior high school. Little is known about the story at this time. Nothing about the release is known yet, only that it's a manga and not likely a full-length series. So, obviously no word yet on when it'll launch and if we'll get it outside of Japan, but uh, we probably will. I hope we will. Fingers crossed again. The Hollywood Reporter has released the shortlist of leading ladies vying for the titular character for the American live-action adaptation of Battle Angel Alita. It was announced a few months back that Robert Rodriguez was in talks to take over as director from James Cameron, which turns out to be true, and Cameron will stay on as a producer while somehow also working on four new Avatar films. The shortlist to play Alita includes Independence Day Resurgence's Micah Monroe, Maze Runner Scorch Trials' Rosa Salazar, and KC Undercover's Zendaya. Zendaya? Zendaya? I'm sorry, I don't know how to say your name. Now, I don't really have an opinion on the actresses, I'm just surprised they're already starting to cast when the film hasn't even been greenlit. 20th Century Fox is reportedly still negotiating down the budget of the film. And finally, I would be remiss in my duties as the anime expert not to comment in some way about the drama unfolding around the live-action Ghost in the Shell film. And by that I mean, of course, the casting of Scarlett Johansson as the Major. When it was first announced that Margot Robbie was in talks for the role back in 2014, I really didn't hear anything. When Scarlett Johansson was cast, I think earlier this year, the news really didn't catch anyone's attention. It wasn't until very recently when they released the first picture of her in costume that the outrage really fully took hold. 
Now, there are a lot of articles out there. There's people arguing both sides of the story. It's really hard to sift through everything and find the truth over opinion. So here's what I have found in my research. So far, I haven't found anything that officially confirms that the role of the major is going to be called Matoko Kusanagi. I've seen people talk about it, but I haven't seen the studio issue the character name beyond the major. It shows up as Kusanagi on IMDb, but this is the same stupidly counterintuitive site that thinks I'm in films that I'm obviously not in and refuses to let me correct it. So until the studio says otherwise, I don't know that she's actually playing Kusanagi. If the studio has any brains at all, they'll, and I hate to say this, but they'll anglicize the character, at least in name, to sort of calm that storm somewhat. Nobody is actually going to buy Scarlett Johansson as Matoko Kusanagi, but some Western-sounding name would probably be all right. Honestly, they could just call her the major for the entire film, and I'd be okay with that. It's short, it gets her character as a badass across, little to no controversy. Now, judging by the photo they released, they want to retain some of the major's appearance, though her design kind of changes from manga to movie to anime to anime to anime to however many of them there are at this point. But some of her core features do stay the same, and I think they sort of nailed her in cute little swing bob really nicely. So there's that. Of course, what the internet won't shut up about her appearance is that Paramount supposedly hired an effects studio to make Scarlett Johansson look more Asian. Paramount responded to the rumor with the following statement. A test was done related to a specific scene for a background actor which was ultimately discarded. Absolutely no visual effects tests were conducted on Scarlett's character and we have no future plans to do so. The unnamed sources say, yes they did! The Screen Crush site reached out for comment to the effects studio Lola VFX who denied having any work contracted for the film. Now this could mean, yeah Paramount did a test, but not through that particular effects studio, or maybe the studio did do the work but wasn't told what the film was called, or maybe they're both lying to save face and it's not really working. In any case, the sources are anonymous, so nothing can be proven at the moment, but everybody believes that they did it, so it doesn't really matter what the truth is. Either way, Paramount is shooting themselves in the foot pretty hard right now, and the movie is taking a lot of heat for it. The other thing that I've been hearing going around is that the themes of the story are uniquely Japanese. It was written in a time period when Japan had a very specific relationship with technology that the rest of the world didn't, so Americans can't really understand the true value of the story. I guess I don't really understand the argument. Like, fundamentally I get what they're trying to say, but I don't think that that somehow means the story can't be told or understood by people outside of Japan. Especially when we have films like The Matrix, which were obviously heavily influenced by Ghost in the Shell. And even if it were true, I think it's important to tell stories from other countries and other cultures and other people's histories because we all have something to learn from each other. So I can't exactly rally behind the whole the story is too Japanese to be told by white people, especially when the manga's publisher is saying stuff like, quote, Looking at her career so far, I think Scarlett Johansson is well cast. She has the cyberpunk feel, and we never imagined it would be a Japanese actress in the first place. This is a chance for a Japanese property to be seen around the world. Between this and the other comments going around, the Japanese don't have much of an opinion on the casting. They don't seem to dislike it, but they also don't really seem to care either. Now, don't get me wrong, Japan's apathy does not excuse Paramount. America has a serious whitewashing problem. Last year was ugly for whitewashing films here, and this year isn't shaping up to be a whole lot better. 
Race is a delicate thing, and it should be given a lot more thought and respect in our media. The diversity we see on screen should reflect the diversity we have in this country, but it doesn't, and that boils down to the dollars. Scarlett Johansson will put general audiences into the seats. There aren't too many actresses who can say the same, and unfortunately, none of them are Asian. Is that fair? Hell no. But the studio wants to make money, and I don't blame them because movies based on anime and manga haven't done super well in the past, and it's going to take their A-game to make this project not blow up in their faces, any more than it already has anyway. So what do I actually think about all this? Honestly, I'm tired of it. I really never wanted this movie to be made. There are almost no anime manga adaptations that I'd like to see as a live action because they always seem to go so wrong. And what I really didn't want to see was a classic like Ghost in the Shell getting dragged through the Hollywood machine or the internet muck. There was no way, no matter what happened, any of us were going to be happy with this. We're never, as a whole, as a fandom, ever truly happy with what we get. You know what I was happy with? Homages, like Trinity in The Matrix. That's fine. But I guess since the movie is actually happening and I don't have the luxury of pretending it'll go away like the supposed Cowboy Bebop film that'll never come out, I'll say for now that I'm not terribly optimistic, but I'd also like more information. I'll reserve full judgment until I see it when it comes out next year, but I will give it this much. The whitewashing debate is definitely one worth having. Even if Paramount anglicizes a film, changes all the character names, sets it in New York or something like that, it will still have brought people's attention to the very real problems faced by Asian actors and actresses in Hollywood. It's good that we recognize the issue. It's good that we're talking about it. In fact, it might be the only good that comes out of this film. Anyway, I have talked for quite long enough. Please don't hate me. That's all I've got going on in the anime and manga world. I will kick it over to Dr. Gonzo. Okay, and here's all the news that's fit to hear in the gaming world this week. Our top story, the Fallout 4 mod community can now rejoice, for the Fallout 4 creation kit is now available for people to use to change, warp, twist, and otherwise paint their own mark on the rich canvas of Fallout 4. Bethesda also announced that they plan to open modding capabilities for Xbox One in May and PlayStation 4 in June. So, if you're a console player who ever wanted to play a naked Amazon with Fatty Arbuckle's face tattooed on her back, wearing a Darth Vader helmet and walloping super munits with a giant purple dildo that sings Thriller with every swing, you are A, going to get your chance, and B, just a little fucked in the head. And PAX East was last weekend, and among the many announcements made was a piece dropped by Gearbox CEO Randy Pitchford, who confirmed that Borderlands 3 is in development. Battleborn's art director Scott Kester is on board to fill the same role, and Mike Newman has been tapped to do writing duties. Borderlands 2 was released in 2012 and is the top-selling game in the franchise so far, with the subsequently released Borderlands the pre-sequel, developed by 2K Australia, receiving mixed review scores. <laughs> and Scott Cawthon, creator of the Five Nights at Freddy's series, just can't seem to let a good thing go. A teaser image has appeared on Scott's website showing what appears to be an animatronic clown along with the words sister location, there was never just one. Scott has confirmed this next game is set in the Five Nights at Freddy's world, and when pressed about his statement that FNAF World was going to be the last in the series, he replied, well, nobody said I couldn't change my mind. And finally, many remember the great PlayStation Network hack of 2011 when 70 million accounts were compromised in the long, dark age of 23 days that PlayStation users were unable to get their Breaking Bad Netflix fix. Say that three times fast. 
Well, Sony, it seems, has learned at least one lesson from the debacle. The company announced this week that they will be introducing a tool to make user accounts more secure in the form of two-factor authentication. This means that in addition to a username and password, you will be required to enter a second form of verification to access an account. Steam users who use Steam Guard are already familiar with this concept, as the service texts a verification code to your phone that must be entered within 30 seconds to access your account. Could Sony be implementing a similar system? Only time will tell. And that's all the headlines that we have for this week. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. We will see you next week when we go back to our regular scheduled madness. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. I'm Dr. Gonzo. Taka, play us out. <laughs>